It's almost as if the Apostle Paul wrote the words to those songs. Those songs are a beautiful uh, expression of what we're reading in Romans. And as we're reading through the Bible together, we are in Romans. And if, you've, if you're not reading Romans with us, I encourage you to join us. You could sit down and with, really within half an hour, probably read the entire book. It's not really that long. Um, I am going to try to preach the entire book in 20 minutes. So just, just to show you, I'm just kidding. Um, Romans really is the fullest explanation that Paul gives for what the gospel is. What is the gospel? And that's what the book of Romans is written about. I encourage you as well to watch the Bible Project videos about Romans. Romans may not be that long of a book, but it is a very deep book. Uh, there is a lot there to unpack. In all seriousness, we could probably spend a year trying to preach through the book of Romans. So the, the, the Bible Project videos are great to help you unpack that. And one of the things that they beautifully illustrate in that video and in the poster is sort of, and I put the quote up here, this is really a great summation of what the book of Romans is about. It's about how the gospel reveals God's righteousness, creates a new humanity, fulfills God's promise to Israel, and unifies the church. And this morning, I want us to focus mainly on how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And before we do that, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your great love for us that we have sung about, the love that was demonstrated for us on Calvary's cross, the power of the cross to help us to cross over from death to life, from darkness to light, from being self-centered and focused to being God-centered and others-focused. And I pray, Lord, that as we come to Your Word and then as we come to Your table, that You would speak to our hearts, that You would pierce through the pride, that You would pierce through the apathy, that You would work Your way to the depths of our being. And may Your light shine within each and every one of us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want us to look at our New Testament reading again. This passage really sets up the first four chapters of Romans. The first four chapters of Romans are really just in uh, Paul expounding on what he says right here in verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Paul next takes the verses, really at chapters 1 through, about halfway through chapter 3, and he focuses on this idea of the righteousness of God being revealed. And he tells us first that righteousness is demanded because God is holy and we are not. God is holy, but people are sinful. Look with me in verses 18 through 23. And I invite you to read along in your Bible. The wrath of God is being revealed. So he tells us in verse 17 that the gospel reveals the righteousness from God. And then in the next verse, he tells us that also the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor give thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul is telling us that God is the glorious, righteous creator of the world and He has made Himself known to His world through His creation. He has revealed His invisible divine nature through what He has made. And, and, and for that very reason alone, wicked people are without excuse. There's no excuse for anyone because God has made it plain to us who He is. He has put it in people's hearts to know what is right and wrong. You don't have to have ever read the Ten Commandments to know in your heart that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong. God has put those things into human beings. The people who were made in God's image, who knew God, instead chose to exchange the glory of the immortal God for idols, for trinkets made by human hands to look like the things that God created. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. That really is the essence of sin. It's to exchange God's glory for our own glory. To worship the created rather than the Creator. To fail to glorify and give praise to God for His goodness and grace, for His presence and power. In sin, people turn from what is true and right to follow what is wrong and false. And Paul continues throughout this chapter to describe how all humanity are guilty of idolatry and sin, and therefore God brought judgment against them. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over. See, he says in verse 24 that God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts for sexual impurity. In verse 26, he says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God who gave them over, see, now God is giving them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. We see all mixed in together here the depravity, the sinful rebelliousness of humanity, but also God's judgment. And notice that the consequence of their sin, time and again, Paul says that God gave them over. In other words, He has just left them to their own devices to suffer the natural consequences of life without God, without the source of love and truth and light and wholeness and peace and life. They have exchanged truth for lies, the Creator for the creation, the, un, the natural for the unnatural, and they have exchanged life for death. People are confused about who they are, about where they came from. Their minds are depraved, their hearts are impure, their bodies are degraded, and as he says in verse 32, the end result ultimately is death. Now Paul is writing this to the Christians in Rome. And and the people in Rome, the Christians there, came from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. So now the Jewish people who are reading this letter, Paul knows them. He knows what they're thinking. They're reading this chapter and they're thinking, yeah, those Gentiles, that's a bad lot. I'm telling you, it's a good thing that we're Jews. It's a good thing we have the Torah. It's a good thing we're not as depraved as all of these Gentile idolaters. And that's why Paul goes on in chapter 2 to tell us that righteousness is demanded because the law is broken. It's not just the Gentiles who are guilty of sin. The Jews were guilty too. In fact, Paul says that because the Jews had the Torah and should know better, in reality, they're even more guilty than the Gentiles. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing... Do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then look at verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Paul says that simply having the law is not enough. You also have to keep the law. But you have to keep the law in its entirety. Because if you break one law, you've broken all of the law. And you must keep the law inwardly, not just outwardly. It's not just enough to be physically circumcised. Your heart must be circumcised by the Spirit. Sin must be cut off and cast away from you. And so Paul concludes, look with me in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? 
Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike all are under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight. By observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Paul tells us that everyone is guilty of sin. And he says, so if the Torah isn't able to make us righteous, what can? If circumcision and being a Jew doesn't get you into the kingdom of God, what will? Righteousness may be demanded, but is righteousness obtainable? And that brings us to the crux of Paul's argument that righteousness is declared through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not through obeying the law, but through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the selfless sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And as we approach this table, we should come reminded of the vileness of human sin and the suffering it brings. We know that the world is lost in darkness. And we know that apart from Christ, we are lost in darkness. But the Lord's table should also remind us that it is not by our own efforts that we can approach God. If there had been any other way for people to be made right with God, Jesus would not have bore our sins and died on the cross. But it is only by His grace that we can be saved. And so in these verses, Paul helps us understand how we are justified, how we are declared righteous, how we are made right in His sight, and it is through no effort of ourselves. In verse 21, he tells us that we are made right apart from the law. Paul had just explained in verse 20 that the law is incapable of making anyone righteous. The purpose of the law is to make us aware of our sin. In chapter 7, verse 13, Paul also says the law was given, quote, in order that sin might be recognized as sin. The law is like a magnifying glass meant to magnify for us the holiness of God and just how lost and in need we are of salvation. That's what the law accomplishes. But those who trust in the works of the law, what they're trying to say is that righteousness is about behaving. 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us no, righteousness is about believing. The point of the law is that no one can behave rightly enough to be saved. And the prophets themselves testify that Israel could never live up to their covenant promises. We, we read through all those Old Testament prophecies, pro, uh, prophecies. You remember they were almost like a broken record. Time and again, Israel was called to task for breaking the Torah. They couldn't keep it. Prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about a future day when God would then make a new covenant. One not written on stone, but written on our hearts. New hearts given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's why you can't earn your way to heaven by being religious or by being good because we can never be good enough. In verses 22 and 23, Paul tells us we are made right through faith in Christ. Look what he says there. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When people try to find a righteousness through religious works, They're seeking a reward that they can earn. But the gospel tells us that righteousness is a gift that can only be received through faith. And not just some generic kind of faith. And people talk a lot about being, you know, have faith, you know. But your faith is only as good as the object you put your faith in, right? And people can have faith in a lot of things. We can have faith in ourselves. We can have faith in our elected officials. Believe it or not, some people do. Uh, We can have faith in our abilities our good works, our wealth, our career. We can have faith in a lot of things. But we are made right in God's sight only when our faith and trust are placed firmly in Jesus Christ. And there's another important point to be made in these two verses. It's part of Paul's overall objective to demonstrate how the gospel unifies the church. See, the church in Rome, I know it's hard to believe that churches do this, but they were having squabbles. And you had the Jewish Christians and you had the Gentile believers. And throughout this letter, Paul affirms that the gospel is for everyone, for Jew and Gentile. And here Paul reminds us that because everyone is guilty of sin, salvation is therefore available to everyone who believes in Jesus. He states that again in Romans ten thirteen when he said, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The doors of the church are open to everyone who would come and put their faith and trust in Jesus. That means it doesn't matter who you are this morning. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you. Jesus died for you. And He invites you to come to Him for forgiveness, for a fresh start, a blank slate, to come for eternal and abundant life. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is welcome at His table. Because you cannot be made right in God's sight by anything other than His grace. And that's the next point Paul makes in verse 24. We are made right by God's grace. He says that we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. None of us deserve a seat at Christ's table. We are all unworthy sinners who fall short of God's glory. You see, that's the point of grace. Grace is something we freely receive, a true gift. Jesus purchased that gift for us on the cross. He paid the price that you and I owe for sin. In Romans 6.23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does he say there is the result of sin? 
death. And how does he say we receive death? Their wages. Death is the wages of sin. Now you think about what wages are. Wages are something you earn. You work for and receive your wages. And what Paul is saying is our sin is our work and the wages we receive for it is death. When payday comes, that's what's written on the check. Death. Now, God doesn't want us to receive death. God has an alternative for us. What is the alternative God has for us? Not death, but life. And how do we receive that life? Do we earn them? Are they wages? No, they are a free gift that we receive by faith. Sin earns us death. But faith in Christ, we receive life. We can't earn it. See, you can't try to earn your way to heaven because our works are tainted by sin. No matter how hard you work at being good, guess what the wages are? Death. Every time. The only way you can receive life is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of grace. God gives us what we don't deserve, what we could never earn. And it's all because of His love. You see, grace may be free, but grace isn't cheap. And Paul tells us in verse 25 that we are made right with God at a great cost. I want to read this to you from the New Living Translation. It just helps us to see it in a different light. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. You see, in the Old Testament, priests made animal sacrifices on the Day of Atonement to cover over the sins of the people, and it was good for a year. They had to do that again every year. But the blood of those countless lambs and bulls were never enough to really pay the penalty for people's sin. It was almost as if they were kind of charging their sins on a spiritual credit card. So the priest would sacrifice animals on the altar. The sins of the people would be credited on a future bill that Jesus Christ would have to pay on Calvary's cross. See, sin must be paid for. Either I can pay for my sin through death and eternal separation from God, or these animals right here can kind of take my sin and pay for them on credit. Now, can you imagine how the credit card bill continued to grow over the centuries? The trillions of crimes and sins committed, the millions of animals being sacrificed. Think about the death that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay. But that is the high cost of grace and justice. Paul goes on to say we are made right in perfect justice. In verse 25b, look what he says. He says, He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. When Paul says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, it literally means that Jesus was the sacrifice that satisfies. The big fancy theological word for this is propitiation. And when something is propitiated or atoned for, it simply means that something is paid for, something is satisfied, the debt has been taken care of. The question is, who's holding that debt? What had to be satisfied? And the answer is 
God's holy, righteous sense of justice had to be satisfied. That means that the cross, y'all, was not primarily for us. The cross was primarily for God the Father. Since the blood of animals were just a a symbolic payment of, of credit, sacrifices really didn't deal with sin in a lasting way. To make sure that no one could question His justice, Christ died to make that final full payment to satisfy the justice of a holy and righteous God. So Jesus took our place. Jesus paid the price we were supposed to pay. He took our punishment. He suffered our penalty. And He satisfied the justice of God against the sinful, rebellious humanity. Justice says somebody has to pay. And before the world was even created, the triune God agreed upon a plan in which humanity's sin would be placed squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He would take our punishment so that God could acquit us of our sin and still be justified in doing so. And so on the one hand, sin would be shown to be the horrible thing that it is, but on the other hand, God would be shown to be the just and loving God that He is. Grace is freely given to sinners only because God's justice is satisfied by the payment of that sinner's sin. Your sin and mine must be paid for. Jesus paid for it. And this shows us how powerful and loving God is. That Jesus suffered so much injustice so that God's justice could be satisfied. Just think about it, as the Jews and the Romans poured all of their wrath upon Jesus at His trial and crucifixion, God's wrath at our sin was completely released upon Christ on the cross. Jesus absorbed all of our sin and shame, all of our suffering and pain, so that we could receive the righteousness and the grace and the love of God. That's the Gospel, y'all. We are sinners. And we deserve death. But Jesus is righteous and He sacrificed Himself dying for our sins. He substituted Himself in our place. As Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, Jesus changed places with us and He put Himself under the curse that you and I deserve. John Stott really, I think, sums up Paul's train of thought in these three chapters of Romans beautifully. He says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where man deserves to be. My question for you this morning is, where are you? Where are you? Have you usurped God's rule and reign? Have you put yourself on the throne of your life where God only deserves to be? I'm telling you today that God put Himself on the cross where only you deserve to be so that you could be forgiven and saved today. That's what this table is about. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've not received this fresh start, this forgiveness and life everlasting, you can come today Yes, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, but we are saved and made saints by the grace of God. Would you come today and experience His grace as we stand and as we sing?